so we are kicking uh, back into our restoration series. And I don't really know a lot about restoration. I do love the show Flea Market Flip, where they like go to a flea market and buy things and flip it and make it to something so cool. And it is my dream to one day be like those people. But I am currently not like that. <laughs> so I don't really know anything uh, besides the TV shows that I've seen about physical restoration. But today we're going to talk about spiritual restoration. So before we get started, if you would pray with me. God, I pray that you would anoint our time together today as we seek, our, seek out godly truth and wisdom for our lives. We desire to hear from you as we focus in on pressing in on our Christian lives. Teach us today with your spirit and your wonderful name. Amen. All right, so we are in Philippians chapter 4 today, verses 2 through 9, and it says, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree, to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose name are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. So Paul is trying to shape the perspective of the Philippian church in a specific way, in a way that they can rejoice through hardship, make sense of suffering, and love their neighbors. He's trying to bring restoration to their mindset. He tells us over and over again that followers of Christ look a certain way, they act a certain way, they think a certain way, and he's been trying to help us look and think like they do. Paul uses the word uses the word mindset multiple times in the book of Philippians. And Paul uses that word because that is what he is trying to shape. If he can shape their outlook and mind about the world and Jesus, then everything else will follow. So throughout these few verses, he gives three clear commands um, for what the Christian life should look like. Uh, his first command is to seek unity. In verses 2 through 5, it says, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So these Philippians have this thriving community of believers, but there's this friction we see here between Euodia and Syntyche, and we can relate to this. We at Evangel Temple have a thriving community of believers, but that doesn't mean we always agree on everything. Sometimes we butt heads about things. Uh, we disagree about certain issues. Um, 
Now, we don't know what the conflict was between Euodia and Syntyche, but we know what it wasn't. It wasn't a doctrinal issue because Paul would have corrected it. It wasn't a sin issue because Paul would have rebuked it. And what we, we must understand that these women were mature and faithful, and they devoted their life to the gospel. But because, just because of their maturity and their faithfulness, it didn't safeguard them against arguing over less important issues, over preferences or opinions. And there's nothing wrong with having preferences or opinions, but when that hinders our unity, that's an issue. There is no hope of unity apart from the Lord Jesus. Nothing less than Christ himself can hold us as sinners, as people who fail and fall short and come from very different backgrounds at peace with one another. People want agreement over all sorts of things. I've known people who want to unify the church over their view of end times, a translation of the Bible, having the building decorated a certain way, musical styles, more recently masks and social distancing and political parties. And the body of Christ is made up of men and women and children of every tribe, every tongue, every nation. And unity is only possible if we rise above human experience, preferences, opinions, and focus on the Lord. We see that the peace of the church is of the utmost importance to Paul. Paul knows that this disunity between Yodia and Syntyche could cause a greater disunity in the congregation as a whole. And is unity that important to us today? Are we willing to lay down our differences, our preferences, our opinions to pursue the cause of Christ? Verse 4 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. So Paul goes on to say, Rejoice in the Lord. Rather, rather than argue about what you guys don't have in common, let us rejoice in the thing that brings us together, Jesus. When Paul is speaking of rejoicing, he certainly isn't talking about the kind of happiness that the world talks about. Um, he doesn't mean do whatever it takes you to be happy. He's not talking about this random emotional response uh, because you've set your life up to take care of yourself. The word rejoice throughout Philippians is the Greek word that means gift. Uh, this isn't a forced emotion that you make yourself feel uh, when bad things happen. To rejoice literally means to be aware of a gift, the gift of life, the gift of breath, the gift of getting up in the morning to rejoice means to be aware of this gift. It's about waking up to this reality that even on the hardest days, I have a gift. The reality that life is good because Jesus has reconciled us to the Father and he is making all things new. And I believe that rejoicing is something that we have to condition ourselves to do, not because we aren't thankful for the life that God's given us, just because we forget sometimes. It's also pausing in the middle of the hard days and remembering that even though this situation is painful, this is hard, I don't know what to do, but I still have something to rejoice about. Everything may be crumbling around me, but I still have a gift to be thankful for. I think a lot of us felt this in the year of 2020. I don't think any of us are going to look back and be like, wow, that was an awesome year. No, I don't think any of us are going to say that. But in the midst of that turmoil, turmoil and chaos and the unknown, 
We still had a gift to be thankful for. We still have a gift to be thankful for in the unknown that is this year as well. And Paul is a perfect example of this. As he is writing these words, Paul is sitting in prison. And Paul, so Paul had a reason not to rejoice, but he knew that God deserved his praise despite his circumstances. Though he's sitting in prison, God still deserves his praise. Verse five, Paul says, to let your reasonableness be known to everyone. So this, this word reasonableness, you might, uh, your Bible might say gentle spirit or gentleness. Um, and, and it's a little tricky to translate. Being reasonable means that you can be reasoned with. In the context of relationships and conflict, it means that you're winnable, that you're eager for reconciliation, that you're eager for restoration. And I think the best way to summarize this is the idea that we are to yield to one another in the Lord or let my desire or your desire for restoration be known to everyone. Everyone should know you as a person of peace, a person that is eager to forgive, a person that is eager to, to reconcile those differences. And because we're sinners and we offend people and because other people are sinners and offend us, um, when we offend others, we are to be humble and contrite and long for peace. And when we're offended by others, we are to be reasonable, winnable, and eager to forgive. And it's hard to admit that we're wrong, but it's equally, if not sometimes harder, to forgive those who have wronged us. That's why I think that the focus of reconciliation in the epistles is not on the offender, but on the offended. Because it's so difficult when someone's done something wrong to you to want to seek restoration, to seek reconciliation with that person. I think we've all been there at some point when someone's done us harm. You're not like, yeah, I want to go forgive them. That sounds nice. None of us really think that, but that's what we have a call to do, to be eager to forgive to be eager for unity, to eager for reconciliation. Romans 12, 18 says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And now we can't make others act that way. We can't make others seek peace, but we can govern ourselves. We have control of ourselves and with the help of the Holy Spirit, we can find unity in the Lord. So first, we must seek unity. And the second command that Paul gives is to be prayerful. Verses six through seven say, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So Paul makes a very important contrast in these verses. He knows, as we know today, that anxiety plagues us. It incapacitates us and keeps us in bondage to the fears of the unknown, to the fears of the future. So it's really important that when Paul covers the issue of worry, he tells us to worry in nothing or not one thing. Paul's not giving us a command to lessen our worry or even change the focus of our worry. And he's not even telling us to eliminate our worry. What Paul is telling us is to take our worry and replace it with prayer. And a lot of time our worry is an issue of control. I'm afraid of the future because I don't have control of the future. I don't know what tomorrow's gonna bring. This situation is scary because I have no control of the outcome. 
But we're going to take, Paul asks us to take this control that we feel we need and lay it at the feet of Jesus because he's the only one who has ultimate control of our lives and our circumstances. Paul tells us not to be anxious, but rather as an alternative to being anxious, be in prayer. And this is an interesting contrast because prayer is an act of submission, not an act of control. We all feel this desire and need for control, but Paul is telling us to submit to the Lord and lay down that control. Rather than telling them to get their act together and stop being anxious, he again is trying to help them realign their perspective to point their minds to someone who can only give them freedom, and that's Jesus. Prayer puts us in our place, that we don't have control, that, that at the end of the day, I can't control my situations, I don't control my future, but he does. You pray because prayer is an act of dependence on God and not yourself. It's the peace of God that is an alternative to anxiety. It surpasses our understanding and our control of a situation. They aren't, simply, they aren't called simply to have peace. They are offered peace, and they can accept it. And peace isn't something that comes easy. We often depend on ourselves, our own successes, and our own ability to give ourselves freedom. But in turn, doing this creates anxiety within ourselves. But the peace of God comes to those that receive it and that allow their dependence on God to be greater than their dependence on themselves. You accept and experience this peace through prayer and acknowledgement that you need God and you depend on him because you can't do it yourself. So what should you pray about? If we're called to be prayerful, what should we pray about? Verse 6 says, anything and everything you worry about. Anything and everything. So how should we pray? First, pray. Talk to God, speak to him, use your words. Second, supplicate before him. This means appeal to him from your heart and your soul. And the second half of verse six says, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So the word thanksgiving that Paul uses is translated from the Greek word eucharista. We get our word eucharist from this word. Eucharist is another name for the Lord's Supper, which is a time to give thanks for Jesus' death on the cross and his blood that he shed. All our thanksgiving must begin there, at Calvary, where our Savior gave his life for us. And if we've been saved, we have so much to be thankful for. Verse 7 says, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So the peace of God becomes our guard. So Paul is in prison and he has all these guards around him, but he says that the peace of God has become his guard, has be, will become your guard. The peace of God stands guard over our minds and keeps us focused on Christ. And for the sake of full disclosure, I have to point out that Paul doesn't say in verse 7, and God will give you exactly what you've asked for. But... And the peace of God will guard your heart and mind in Christ. And you might not think this is true, but the peace of God is greater than any answer to prayer. Uh, my youth pastor growing up used to always say, do you want the dream or the dream giver? Do you want the healing or do you want the healer? Of course I want the dream giver. Of course I want the one who gives those things more than I want those things. Because he is so much greater than anything. He's so much greater than any answer to prayer. 
And the peace of God is God's own peace. Perfect, constant, certain, unshakable, content, and joyful. So we get to Paul's last command in this section, and it is to think and do. Verse 8 says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So Paul is wrapping up this section of verses, and he's trying to help shape the mindset of the Philippian church and show them that the characteristics that are important for each individual and the church body as a whole. So these are things that are important for individuals and us as a community. And the human mind is always going to set itself on something. And so Paul wants to make sure that the Philippians would set their mind on the right things. Um, my pastor growing up always said, whatever you think about longest will become strongest in your life. Whatever you think about longest will become strongest in your life. And I have found that so true in my own life. Whenever I dwell on certain thoughts or certain situations, I feel like that, that thing is my whole life. And like, that's all I can think about. And every conversation is flooded with this thing that's just controlling my mind. And, And this is why Paul is telling us these important things to dwell on. He isn't telling us, if you notice, he says whatever is true, whatever is honorable. So he's not telling us what is true. He doesn't tell us what is honorable, what is just. He just says whatever these things are. He recognizes that these adjectives are very subjective. And he acknowledged this before when he referred to the friction between Euodia and Syntyche. He obviously thinks there is a difference between truth and falsity, right and wrong. He's just not telling us what they are or what he thinks they are in this case. Peace from God isn't found in being right and everyone else being wrong. The book of Philippians, what we've been spending a few weeks on, provides us with a system in which we can make these kind of discerning decisions together as a community and through our study of Scripture. Paul has told us to pray in an act of showing our dependence on God. We are to act on the things we have learned. In other words, actually live out the things that we have seen and learned. Verse 9 says, practice these things. What you have learned, practice these things. So not just think about these things, but also what you have learned, do these things. So we must discipline our perspective to keep God's entire story in focus. And when your life becomes Christ-focused on his death and resurrection, then we begin to have a proper perspective and ability on making judgments about what is pure and what is commendable and what is lovely and what is honorable. And which we'll soon find out these things are not the same things as the dominant culture in which we find ourselves. Paul is not giving us a list of don't do this and don't do this. Uh, This is not an attempt to rid us of all our bad behaviors that we have. Rather, Paul is taking a different approach here. He wants us to be morally excellent. He wants the church at Philippi and us to be a community that stands as an alternative to the culture around us. Not just a community that toots the horn of whatever our culture thinks is excellent, but a community that determines what is excellent for a world that is Christ. 
These things that Paul has called us to do are so countercultural. Our culture doesn't seek unity. It's about making a name for yourself. How many followers do you have on Instagram? How many people do you know? How many connections do you have? How many friends do you have? And pushing down anyone who gets in your way and getting to the top. But that's not the way of Jesus. Our culture is drowning in anxiety and depression because there's so much going on in our individual lives, in our minds, in our world, and it all feels so overwhelming. But this isn't the way Jesus intended us to live. Our culture doesn't seek to think on things above or think about things that are pure. It doesn't take a lot for us to realize this in our dominant culture. It just takes um, looking at social media for a little bit, watching TV, our movies, and you can see that the message that culture is sending us isn't one of purity. But that's not the life that Jesus has called us to. But when we seek unity and are prayerful, and think about righteous things, and also do them, then like the last part of verse 9 says, the peace of God will be with you. So Paul has given us a clear command to seek unity uh, with the church as a little c, us as a community of people, but also as the church as a big c, the church as a whole. Uh, Seek unity with our Baptist brothers and sisters, our Catholic brothers and sisters. Um, We're, it's a, There are conversations between these groups that are important, but we're also called to be in unity with them. Um, We're also called by Paul to be prayerful, to trade this worry or anxiety that we have and replace it with prayer. And then finally, he says to think and do. I think the and do is really important because I think in church a lot of times we do a lot of the thinking or a lot of the listening and I come in on a Sunday or I come in on a Wednesday and I just like open my brain and like pastor pour into me and then we go and we're like oh that was a nice message I really liked that but we forget the second part the do. We're like oh okay let me think about what is lovely and what is pure but we don't do any of those things. Like, we don't live out what we've been called to do. Um, Like, this is such an important part of the things. What would it look like if we were to be lovely and honorable to our neighbors? What would it look like if we were like this to our community? Not only as the church as a little c, but the church at large. How unifying is that when we don't just think about these things, but also do them? That brings unity in and of itself. And that's so beautiful. Um, The ET Youth, we've been, um, we just wrapped up a series on Alpha. And this last Wednesday, the video was about um, church. And so every video, they like interview random people on the street. And one of the questions was about church. And like, what do you think about church? Or what's your experience with church? And one of the guys, um, he's been in the video quite a few times. And through his answers, you can tell he's not a Christian. He doesn't believe in God. But he said something that really stuck out to me. He said that, I think church is cool because these people who are so different come together for the same cause. Like, that's so beautiful. And I talked to the students about this on Wednesday, that we all come from so different backgrounds. We all have vastly different stories. We're from different parts of the U.S., different parts of the world. And we come together for the same cause that is Christ. And that is so beautiful. If you guys would bow your heads with me as we pray. God, I pray that you would help us to seek unity, not just in this congregation, but at large. Um, 
that we would be people who are reasonable, winnable, eager to forgive, despite how we have offended people or how people have offended us. May we be quick to forgive. God, may we help us to replace our worry for prayer and know that you have control. You're not going to drop the ball. You're not going to mess up, but you are going to come through. It may not look how we thought it would, but you have control of our lives and we put our trust in you. And may we think about what is pure, trade our impure thoughts for pure thoughts, trade our unlovely thoughts for lovely thoughts. And may we not just think about those things, but may we also live them out. May we be kind to our neighbor. May we be lovely to our neighbor, whether that's seeing our neighbor in person or on Facebook. May we be the kind of people who live a life that represent you in everything we do whether it's at a coffee shop, the gas station, a market, through our art, whatever it may be, Lord. May we think and do those things. In your wonderful name, amen.